Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. Good morning. Good morning. I bring today three passages. The first from 1 Kings chapters 18 verses 22 to 24 and 36 to 39. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Now 36 to 39. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now 1 Kings chapter 19 verses 1 to 5, New International Version. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that one of, of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, bush sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks so, thanks so much, Micah. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're here. Thank you that you're here through your spirit, uh, that your spirit is in us and encouraging us and helping us. Lord, pray that you would speak to us this morning 
and that we would leave here as people who are being transformed by your spirit in our minds and our hearts and our actions, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure what, uh, what causes your mind to race, what causes you to panic or catastrophize. Uh, whatever it is, as you know, it's not a pleasant experience, is it, when you find yourself in that place. A number of years ago, I, uh, I noticed myself catastrophizing after I went to visit the doctors. I was, we were living in Malawi at the time, and uh, we, I had, had this sort of ongoing pain in my chest. And uh, it wasn't like a heart thing, it was like more of a breathing thing. And so I went down to South Africa and I got an x-ray done and um, I went to see the doctor, got an x-ray done and I expected the x-ray to come back sort of normal, you know, just uh, he, the doctor would tell me, oh, just, you know, just do this and, um, but you're probably suffering from something quite minor. And so uh, though, when I got back to the guest house where we were staying, I got a call from the doctor saying, oh, you need to come back and get another x-ray because something's shown up in one of your lungs. And uh, I went back and I got that done. And uh, you know how you get an x-ray done at the end of the day and you've got to wait overnight till you get the results? <laughs> well, that's what happened to me. And uh, after the second x-ray, I went back to where I was staying, where we were staying, and then my mind began to take me to different places. I began to sort of spiral in my thinking and I began to catastrophize. Did I have TB? I wondered. TB is really common in Malawi. I hang around with a lot of people who've had TB or have TB or don't know if they've got it but are coughing a lot. Was it pneumonia? I'd had pneumonia before, I'd been hospitalised. Or was it... Was it cancer or was it some sort of lung disease from breathing in fine dust particles? Not sure why I thought of the fine dust particles. I'd never worked in a mine, never knownly breathed in asbestos. Anyway, all that's to say, but by the middle of the night, I was wide awake and I was thinking about my demise and everything. I sort of had been through every possible treatment for every possible disease there was known to man or known to me anyway, and uh, by morning I had myself dead and buried and I was even wondering what people would have said to me, said about me at my funeral. As it turned out, the second x-ray confirmed that I had nothing seriously wrong with me except for the suffering of the mind game that I was experiencing. As we saw on the Mini Me today, it's not just doctors' recommendations for more tests or more scans, though, that, uh, that can give us sweaty palms, is it? Or a terrible night's sleep. In fact, just about anything can, can't it, if we allow it to. And so, for some of you, current world events might make your mind race. You might spend hours or nights ruminating on the threats of war, on climate change, on the emergence of perhaps another deadly virus. Uh, or the likelihood of a recession. For others, you might just be afraid of things immediately in front of you, like the fear of flying. And so every time you hop on a plane, you interpret every noise and bump uh, as a sign of the plane's malfunction and 
you know, the, the, the possibility of its immediate fall from the sky. And if you're honest with yourself this morning, then you'll admit that, you, you, that your thoughts can actually take you to some dark places if you allow them to. And so to counter this, what do we often do? Well, we try to distract ourselves uh, or we try to avoid doing things that might disturb our peace. Um, you know, we avoid perhaps going to see the doctor because, you know, if you never see the doctor, guess what? You never get sick. Is that right, John? Or, or he never tells you, or she never tells you to go and get a scan. So you can't be sick, can you? If you find yourself panicking or catastrophizing over something, then, friends, this morning, you're not alone. In fact, you're in good company. And the good news, though, is that peace and hope can actually be yours today. Not by running away from the issue, not by avoiding the things that, uh, that you're afraid of, but by remembering and embracing one simple truth, one simple and yet profound truth that will change not only your view of the situation, but how you actually go about addressing it. And we're currently in a series on overcoming our mind games. And uh, it's been a great series And today I want to look at what the Bible says about how to stop our mind racing and taking us to those dark places when we face difficult situations. I want to do this by looking briefly at Elijah, the prophet, and then briefly at how the Apostle Paul tackled this. Elijah is one of my favourite characters in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever read much about his life. You can read about it in 1 Kings. Um, and uh, he, he was a, he's like a gutsy sort of prophet, you know. Like as a, as a young lad, I always liked reading about him. He was sort of, you know, I don't know, just imagined him being a bit of a Rambo type guy. Um, and he did some extraordinary things. And uh, he lived in a time when the tribe of Israel were being tempted away from worshipping God into worshipping other gods like Baal and uh, things like that. And so... Elijah was called by God to go and challenge one of Israel's kings, Ahab, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, about their worship of Baal and their encouragement of the people to worship Baal. And so the first thing that God told Elijah to do was to go and meet with Ahab and uh, his wife Jezebel face to face (laughs) and then tell them that uh, that they should stop doing that. Um, And if they didn't, then he was, you know, then, then God was going to, uh, he would pray and God would stop rain falling from the, on the land and there would be a massive drought. Now, I don't know, in management talk, I think that's called like a critical conversation. <laughs> it would have been a tough conversation. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, wouldn't you? I wouldn't have been any closer than a fly on the wall, that's for sure. Because it wouldn't have gone down well from what we know about Jezebel. In fact, Wendy and I had a dog once, and we named our dog Jezebel because she was very, very wicked. And, uh, and so if you ever, if, when you hear the word Jezebel, think of wickedness. This is, this is a wicked woman. In fact, uh, Jezebel and King Ahab, they didn't listen to Elijah, and so the drought began. And then all these amazing things began to happen. And Elijah was involved in all of them. 
Uh, you know, he listened to God. Once the drought came, he listened to God. And, he, you know, he also was affected by the drought. So he was led into the wilderness. And there he was actually fed by birds. Okay, so he, <laughs> that's how he survived. And then after a while, he went to live with a widow and her son. And uh, they fed him. In fact, the first thing he said to the widow was, cook me something first before you cook it for, your, for, your, for yourself and your son. And uh, she did that. And then he said, and your flour won't run out and your oil won't run out. While he's living with the, son, with the widow, the son died and she blamed Elijah. And so Elijah cries out to God and heals the son. And then after several years of this drought going on, finally he gets a word from the Lord that says, um, go and challenge these prophets of Baal for a showdown to determine who is the true God. And we heard about that in the, in the reading this morning. And Elijah is so confident that he tells people to pour water on the wood before he prays. And then he calls out to God and God answers his prayer and bang! the wood and the sacrifice go up in flames. And then, this is my favourite bit actually, he then turns to Elijah. I can just see the movie. I don't know why they haven't made a movie out of Elijah, but it's probably one of the best one-liners in the whole Bible. I can just hear Charlton Heston saying it. He says, Go, eat and drink, for there's the sound of heavy rain. Can you imagine it? Booming out. And uh, he said that while there wasn't even a cloud in the sky. That's faith. Now, I'm not sure about all that quick summary of what that sort of what image you get of Elijah from that quick summary. But what I see is this sort of uber prophet, this Rambo sort of guy. Um, you know, and after such a powerful ministry, we would have expected Elijah to be ecstatic, wouldn't we? You know, he, he'd been tackling these really difficult people. And so we would expect him to be fist-bumping the air, you know, playing We Are the Champions on his air guitar. Wouldn't we? Well, that's what I'd be doing. But that's not what happened. In fact, after King Ahab, King Ahab saw Elijah win the true, the true God battle, the showdown, the competition, and he put all the prophets of Baal to death... Ahab went and told his wife, Jezebel, and she became furious. And she sent Elijah a message saying, by this time tomorrow, you'll be dead like one of those prophets of Baal. Now, we know that this wasn't Elijah's first obstacle. You know, all those sorts of things he tackled uh, were pretty difficult. They would have been quite challenging. He'd already had that face-to-face conversation with Ahab and Jezebel. He'd, you know, he'd, he'd confronted the prophets of Baal. And so what happens next then in this story, it just seems really weird. Because when, when Elijah heard Jezebel's threat, he ran for his life. You see, he was afraid of being killed by her. But when he finally stops running, he tells God that he's had enough and that he wants to die. Now, that doesn't seem logical, does it, when you think about it? He's so scared of being killed by Jezebel that he wants to die. Go figure that one out. But this is exactly how our mind games work, isn't it? 
You see, sometimes our minds take us to illogical places. We can be charging along, things can be going well in our life, then suddenly we're confronted by something, not always something major, and when we allow our minds to, to, to take us, they can take us to dark places and we begin to panic and we begin to catastrophize and we feel undone. So what happened to Elijah? Why did he come undone at that point? Simply stated, he, he, he forgot a simple truth, that the Lord is near. He forgot that God was with him in all those other encounters that I mentioned. He was with him in the drought. He was with him when he confronted uh, King Ahab and Jezebel through the hunger, through the famine, through the death of the widow's son, through the showdown with all the prophets of Baal. He forgot, though, at this point that God was near him. That God was talking to him, guiding him, reassuring him, empowering him in all that he had done. Could you turn the heater down, please? The good news for Elijah is that the Lord didn't leave him broken down and wanting to die. You see, he took him to Mount Horeb, and there there at Mount Horeb, God revealed himself again to him. God called Elijah to stand outside the cave that he was resting in. And then a huge windstorm pummeled the mountain. But the Bible says that the Lord was not in the storm. Then an earthquake rocked the entire mountain. And again, we're told that the Lord was not in the earthquake. Then there was a silence followed by a gentle whisper. A sound barely audible. And when Elijah heard this whisper, he realised that it was God and that God was, was near him. Why did God whisper? Why didn't God bellow at Elijah? That's what I would have done. If I was God, I would be a bellowing God. Surely a booming voice from heaven would get his attention. Give him confidence. God didn't bellow because he wanted to show Elijah that he was near him and that he was near him and with him even when he didn't think, even when it didn't appear that he was. You see, he also whispered to Elijah so that Elijah would lean in. That's what you do when someone whispers, isn't it? You lean in because you, you need to hear what they're saying and which is why, what we need to do when we're in trouble when we find ourselves catastrophizing and panicking, we need to lean in and listen to what God's saying at that particular time. Are you leaning in? Are you listening to God this morning in your situation? I want to encourage you to think about that and to to put that in your mind this morning. You see, Elijah had spiraled out of control because he'd forgotten that God was near him. And so the answer for his spiraling mind was not his own catastrophizing voice, but the voice, the gentle whisper of God. I can panic like Elijah. I think we all can. Circumstances can overtake us. Last year in the floods, remember the Maribyrnong floods? (laughs) I panicked. 
I began to catastrophize. Water didn't get that close to our house. It got close enough. And uh, I began to catastrophize about what would happen. It's good to be concerned about things, but it's, 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 it's important not to catastrophize because we, we actually have an adversary who seeks to destabilize us and make us panic and be anxious by getting us to catastrophize. Because he's actually got the intention of turning everything into an event that steals our peace. Most of, you, most of us know that worrying and catastrophizing don't actually help. And, that, and it doesn't actually change anything. But we invest so much time and so much energy into it, don't we? But Jesus said to, said to people in his famous sermon... He asked them this rhetorical question, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? What's the answer? <laughs> we know it, don't we? Maybe you've been a Christian for years. Maybe, maybe you feel like you've been, okay, been going okay in your in your journey so far, but recently perhaps you've been feeling anxious, been feeling more afraid, find yourself catastrophizing and worrying more than you ever have. Today, like Elijah, you need to remember, I want to encourage you to remember that the Lord is near and that you need to lean in and listen to the Lord's whisper to you this morning. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul explains why remembering that the Lord is near is essential for actually overcoming the mind games that pull us down and which actually rob us of peace. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul told the Philippians that they should, what they should do when they find themselves panicking and catastrophizing. In Philippians 4 verse 5 through 7, it says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. And here's that phrase. The Lord is near. You see, this is the preface to the rest of the sentence, to the rest of the verses, because you need to know that the Lord is near before you do the next bits, you see. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then what will happen? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul's not spiritualizing the Philippians' problems. He's not downplaying them. He's not giving them some sort of token, oh, yeah, man, I'll be praying for you guys. <laughs> Cross my fingers. He, he's actually, in fact, being extremely practical here. Paul is a practical guy. And he's telling them the secret of experiencing peace and hope and joy when all the evidence that's presenting says, don't do that. To fully comprehend what Paul is saying, we need to know the setting of his letter. And there are two settings that Paul wants the Philippians to remember right here as they're reading his letter. And the first is that Paul's actually writing this letter to them from where? From a Club Med on a banana lounge by the pool? <laughs> no, folks, he's, he's writing this from prison. And uh, he's no spin doctor, just pumping out sort of, you know, positive statements. Roman prisons were hellish places. And the second thing we know is that Paul is writing about something that he's got vast experience about. 
See, this wasn't his first time in jail. This wasn't his first rodeo. In the book of Acts, Luke says that Paul visited the city of Philippi and he was led there by the Holy Spirit. And when he arrived, he actually met some women and went by the river who were God seekers and he led them into an encounter with Jesus. And after this, he stays in Philippi and begins to disciple them and teach them. And each day he would walk through the city. And each day as he walked through the city, a young girl who was possessed by a spirit would cry out the truth about who Paul was. She would say, this is a servant of the Most High God. Now you can take that a few times, but every day, and eventually Paul got annoyed by this, and he cast that spirit out of her. Guess what? Some people weren't happy with that because that poor girl who was possessed by a spirit was someone's bread and butter. Someone was making money out of her. And so those businessmen had Paul and Silas thrown into prison. And then, so it sounds like this trip is going from bad to worse, doesn't it? It sounds like it's going downhill. But did they think, did they despair thinking, well, this, is how our, this must be how our lives end? Do their minds begin to spiral down, catastrophizing, beginning to draw on those what-if statements that someone mentioned in the Mentimeter today? Oh, what if we hadn't come? Oh, what if I hadn't have said that thing to the girl? I'd still be walking around. No, they remember the simple and profound truth that the Lord is near. You see, the Lord knew they were there because he had led them there. And we also know what happened in jail. They were beaten and they were put into chains. And then Luke says something very surprising. He says that around midnight, Paul and Silas could be heard singing and praying. Why would you be singing and praying when you're in jail in a really hellish Roman prison? There's only one reason that you would sing and pray when you're in prison like that. When you know in your heart that the Lord is near. But as they were singing and praying, there was an earthquake. They could have thought, oh, as if it could get any worse. But even after the earthquake, they don't panic. Even with the prison completely demolished and their, pray, their chains undone, they didn't try and think, oh, this is our chance to escape. You know, this might be our only chance. We've got to take it. They thought none of that because they knew in their hearts that the Lord is near. And you see, when you know that the Lord is near, you don't need to panic. You don't need to grasp and grab for things in case you miss out. They were looking at their, their situation from a completely different perspective. They were reframing it, as Nathan talked about last week. But most importantly, for avoiding panic and catastrophizing, they remembered and believed that the Lord is near, that God was with them, which is why they were at peace, even in the midst of great trouble and trauma. And here is the simple truth. In this simple truth is the antidote for our anxiety and our catastrophizing. You see, to experience peace, hope and joy in times of turmoil, we need to remember and believe that the Lord is near as well. And you might think, well, how does just remembering that 
make a difference? How is that going to help me? And here's the practical bit that we need to apply. You see, it's very simple. When you believe that the Lord is near, you will actually talk to him and you'll listen to him. You'll actually begin to pray and you'll, 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 you'll talk. You actually only talk to someone when you know they're present, don't you? If you begin talking to someone when no one's around, well, that's not a good sign, is it? <laughs> so if you believe that the Lord is near, then you need to talk to him. And here in his letter to the Philippians, Paul reminds the Philippians that, that, um, that the answer to their anxiety is to remember that the Lord is near. And he says, basically, look, here I am in jail again. It, it, this time it looks like I could be there for a long time. When I first visited you in Philippi all those years ago, remember, I was thrown in jail that time as well. Do you remember that? That's what he's saying to them. But, but he's saying, but both now and back then, I choose to remember that the Lord is near. And this, my friends, is the antidote to worry. It's the game changer for all of our mind games when we're tempted to spiral down into despair and to catastrophize. We all need to know that we're not alone in the situations that we face. We all need to know that we have someone who cares, someone who stands with us no matter the situation, and also someone who can make a difference that we can talk to and ask for help. When was the last time you asked the Lord to help you with something? Paul sums this up beautifully in another letter he wrote from prison. In Romans, he says, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. When Elijah panicked and forgot God, God didn't forget him. God revealed himself to be close with him in the gentle whisper. Friends, God is still whispering today. And he's actually whispering to you. He doesn't bellow because he wants to draw you close so that you lean in and that you feel his presence and hear his voice and so that you Start talking to him, that you start having a conversation with him about your situation. The promise that the Lord is near means that you need to talk to the Lord about what's going on. You can, you can tell the Lord what you are feeling, what you're concerned about. In Psalm 145, it says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What sort of issues should we talk to God about? Well, all, the word all there is really important. All that causes you to be anxious and panic are the things you're meant to bring to the Lord. Friends, what's causing you to panic? What is messing with your mind right now? You know what it is. Is it an illness? Is it employment concerns? Relationship difficulties? 
the fear of being alone? Is it your children's future? What's causing you to lie awake at night and make your mind spiral into dark places? It's not just your mind. There's the evil one who is seeking to use whatever he can to rob you of peace. And it is the Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who wants to restore that peace in your life today, friends. What you need to, do, need to know is that the Lord Jesus cares and he is near and close at all times. And to know that the Lord is near is meant to, is it, it's meant to cause you to pray, to talk to God, who cares for you unconditionally and who can help you and who can work your situation for good. This is what Paul told the Philippians. And he tells them plainly, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Let's finish by joining a few of these ideas from this, these passages together and make a statement that we can take with us into the week and that we can reflect on to remind ourselves. Because, you know, Sunday's great, but Monday comes around real quick. Wednesday, we're at the doctor's or something else. So what are you going to do this week when you hit that situation? Oh, what did Ian say on Sunday? Well, I want you to take these statements away. You can get out your phone, take a picture of this. The Lord is near. That's what you need to remind yourself. He will never leave me or forsake me. Nothing can separate me from God's love. He is with me even when I don't think he is. Because he is close, I can talk to him and I can tell him my problems. He wants to guide me. He helped me lean into God to hear his whisper. Friends, these are, these are things that I want you to reflect on this week. There is a great promise in the statement that the Lord is near and that, and this, and that, that God wants to deliver that promise in your life today. If you feel robbed of peace, if you feel anxious at times and you allow your mind to take you places that you'd rather not go, then you can know an end to that today. Today you can put an end to that. Because the Prince of Peace is here. He's alive. And he wants to guard your heart and he wants to fill you with his spirit. Peace begins simply by affirming that first statement, the Lord is near. Can you do that? Will you do that? Once you affirm this truth, then I want to encourage you to take the next step and tell God what is on your mind. And that's what we call prayer. Once you do that, once you begin that journey with God today, friends, don't go another day allowing your thoughts to drag you down and just putting, trying to put it aside or to distract yourself. Affirm his presence, lean in and tell him your problems and issues and listen to what he tells you next. Finally, friends, when we remember the Lord is near, we'll, we'll not only experience that peace in our lives, and which is tremendous for us, isn't it? That's a tremendous thing for you and I to experience and, and it's something that God promises to do in each one of us. But guess what? 
when that happens in your life, it also affects the people who live around you. You see, after the earthquake in Philippi, the jailer came rushing in, didn't he? And uh, when he saw his prison completely destroyed, he thought, I'm finished. I'll be held responsible. There's no future for me. What was he doing? He was catastrophizing. And then he heard Paul and Silas cry out, don't harm yourself. And he remembered, oh, these guys, these are the singers. These are the guys who sing in my jail. And he realised now that they hadn't tried to escape and that they were trusting in this God. And, they, they, and then he became convinced himself that the Lord was near them and he fell on his knees and he asked them, what do I need to do in order to be saved? Friends, believing that the Lord is near will not only change your life, but it will change the lives of all the people around you because they will see the peace and hope and joy that you experience in the midst of your problems. Jesus is not going to take you away from your problems, friends. We're humans, we live in a real world, but what God promises is actually to help you in those things. Because they'll see your peace, hope and joy in the midst of your problems and they'll see you experiencing the closeness of the Lord and they'll want to experience that for themselves because it's so attractive. That's how people encounter Jesus, friends. That's how people are going to encounter Jesus in your life. Not by you preaching on the street, handing out tracts. It's by you living out your life, living out your, your experience of, of embracing that the Lord is near and then sharing the hope that you have within you for that through general conversations with your friends. That's how people are going to encounter Jesus in you. I want to invite the band back. We're going to go into a time of communion now. And as we, uh, before we go into communion, we're going to sing a song. And uh, I want you to sing this song in reflection and in meditation on this single, simple truth that the Lord is near. I want you to allow this song to wash over you, to challenge you. There might be some things you need to say to the Lord this morning. Now's the time to say that. Reaffirm perhaps something you've forgotten, that you've neglected. Perhaps there's something you need help for specifically this morning. I want you to do that and remember that nothing that you've done in your life can actually separate you as a follower of Jesus from his love. You might think, oh, if you knew me, pastor, what I'd done, what I thought. But this morning, friends, as we come to a time of communion, that's what it's about. It's about the grace of God, what God has done in Jesus to, to set us free and to bring us into a relationship with him. The Lord is here, friends. He is near. Call on Him yourself.